here I'm looking for information on Gaia about Anubis. I'm drawing Anubis right now. Oops. Spelled his name wrong. Anubis puppy. Anubis puppy. Book of Love, Cathars and the Sacred. This is last month's bullshit. Adam's calendar book, Place of Humanity. A Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife with Mark Mirabello. Afterlife is a source of great mystery to human beings. Throughout every culture in history, they've had their own understanding of what that experience is like. Mark Mirabello has been digging deep into this research in his book called A Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife. We're starting this conversation with a strange dedication at the front of this book. So if you don't mind, Mark, I'm going to read it because I thought, what? What is he talking? What did he mean by this, right? That's very good. I love it. Okay, in an underground Mithraic temple in Sarburg, France, archaeologists discovered a human skeleton chained to the altar. The door was found blocked, so the nameless follower of Mithras had died alone in the darkness. To the unknown individual who was murdered for his religion, I dedicate this book. And I thought, wow, that is powerful. No less the Mithraic tradition. Mm -hmm. What was this about? Well, the message was, first of all, I thought it was an interesting hook, so to speak. Yes. It would draw the reader in. It did. And I was trying to make the point that we were going to, in the course of the book, through the travel, if you will, study all kinds of traditions. Uh, there's a tendency to assume that right way, wrong way, wrong way, right way. Uh, but I, the book, I try to explore many, many, many different traditions. We, we know about 3,500 known societies. Exactly. And I also try to study even some extinct religions and so forth. So modern religions are discussed. Traditional religions are discussed. Dead religions are discussed. And in fact, I also try to include a few points from the sciences. And even for uh, people would discover while reading the book, even if there is no God, I'm not trying to say that, even if we do not have an immortal soul, I'm not trying to say that, it's possible that we have a continued existence. And so I thought, uh, and also the powerful message of the way that person died. And I, I, yes. should, I should throw in that because scholars dislike the sensational, many anthropologists have tried to argue and historians that that's not as it appears, that that body was placed there to contaminate the site, it was a sacred site to Mithras, and by putting a body in there, uh, they were driving out the demon that was there. Because in monotheism, there's only a god, and everything else is, is demonic. Right. But I disagree with that. Clearly, this was someone who was murdered. Mm -hmm. And every religion can have its martyrs. Mm -hmm. And the Mithraic tradition is one that's been largely lost to humanity mm -hmm. today. So it has a lot of interesting historical 
um, connotations as well. And getting into this whole subject, we can't do that without getting into you a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you say toward the beginning of the book that you have cancer. It's really curious because um, I, I really, all my life, I've been interested in the history of thought. And this is the really ultimate question, what happens to us when we die? Exactly. And uh, after my father's death, uh, this is really was the final spark to start working in this area. Because frankly, I wanted to see him again and my mother. Right. And I thought, uh, we must prepare for this. Uh, and then in the course of the research, I discovered I had cancer. It's multiple myeloma. Which is tell, a blood tell us cancer. what that is and how that works. It, it's just a blood cancer. It can, is it kind of like leukemia? So it's it's a cousin of it. Very similar. Uh -huh. uh, they're different. And oddly enough, and I consider myself educated, I'd never heard of it until I had the diagnosis. And initially, the um, the the symptoms are rather curious. That's what, what brought were me they? to the doctor. My eye was starting to bulge, my left eye. Mm -hmm. And literally, at one point, when I would blink, it was, the eyelashes were touching my spectacles. And then also, I developed this, what I thought was a stiff neck. Now, it turned out, because this attacks the bones, mm -hmm. uh, I have, in fact, even now, I've got a broken neck, and I'm just sort of living with it. And um, the, the eye, they were actually able to treat that. with It was a sort of a blood tumor behind the eye. Mm -hmm. And it was quite remarkable, because I went through a period of, of these radiation therapy, and it, it without losing any sight, or even Amazing. altering... Uh, my eye went back to normal. Now, before that happened, I started to look like a 1950s cheap horror film. <laughs> oh, uh, because, um, and, it, and I think, oddly enough, that's what brought me into the doctor's office, because I always joke, I don't mind being sick as long as I look good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> Better my to eye, look good than feel good, yes, right? <laughs> yes. So that brought me in, in a sense, saved my life, because they can't cure it, but they can control it. And uh, they're giving me these really expensive drugs, and I've been able to complete the book, buy a house, get married. <laughs> and, You've done it uh, all. Yes, yes. Do you think that living with that condition at the kind of the base of your life and knowing you're not sure exactly how it's going to turn out, except that you can manage it and you are managing it. You've already outlived what they thought to begin with. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that inspired you to dive into life so deeply and with such relish? Yes, in a sense, it made me grow up because I was a bachelor all those years. And I was living in an apartment with literally plastic furniture. I was sitting on long <laughs> furniture. And uh, it made me grow up. I found the, the, the perfect woman that I'd loved for years, and she loved me. And it just, I thought, we have to grow up and make this choice. And uh, the house is I couldn't have put my perfect wife in the ugly apartment. Yeah, so. and it was lawn chair furniture. No, and I don't think she would have stuck around. <laughs> that's the furniture, too. That's, that's her influence. Yeah. So, uh, so it really pushed you into mm -hmm. making some bold decisions, stepping up, stepping up into life, which you hear about a lot with mm -hmm. people who, for example, find they actually have a very short time to live. Mm -hmm. It's like they start living suddenly like a bat out of hell, everything they've held back from themselves. Mm -hmm. And I find that journey itself fascinating. Mm -hmm. I did something similar. It was crazy when I was 27 years old. I didn't know anything about anything, except that I knew if there were any lumps anywhere, you were going to die. Or I thought I knew that, right? Mm -hmm. And I was on a trip in Europe, and, and I discovered wow. this. And I thought, oh, my God, it was the first couple of days of the trip, and I had three weeks to go. And I didn't say anything to anyone, but, of course, falling asleep, and I, I'm going to be dying soon. Wow. And I... I lived, I did live like a bat out of hell. I did anything I wanted, you know, and um, cried when I said goodbye to my sister, thinking, oh, I'll never see her again. It was really quite a dramatic 27-year-old scenario that was all in my head as it turned out. It was nothing. But just brushing up with the potential of it, mm -hmm. 
showed me how I'd been holding back in my own life. 27, that was three years ago? Yeah, three years ago, <laughs> exactly, in a couple months. <laughs> but so it sounds like in a more sane way, you chose to mature into the things you've been holding yourself back from. It's probably my personality. I'm not, I know it's difficult to believe as I tell my college students that I, I'm not a partier. <laughs> Although I do tell them on occasion regarding dance, I like to shake it out on occasion. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you shook it out and you married yes. this beautiful, beautiful woman and she seems like an angel herself. Oh, yes. And so here you are. And so how did that play into your writing this book, mm -hmm. that sense of mortality? Oh, it, what it basically focused, I have a tendency to never stop the research. Right. I just keep going and going and going. And this convinced me that I had to, I, I literally thought at one point they gave me as little, as few as two years. Yeah. So I thought I'd better finish this. So it, it put some fire under me and I started to focus and say, this has to stop. My trouble is I do everything backward when it comes to research. Most people will first pitch the idea, sell the book. I don't do that. I write the book. Mm -hmm. and, sell. and plus, I never know how the book will be until it's finished because it grows organically. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is why this one, which I'm really proud of, because I view all these as children. And this is a, a special child. It is indeed, and a tremendous amount of research embedded in here. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. Okay, so in it, after you went through all of this research and you, you delved into the different countries and belief systems, um, what was the thing that maybe popped out and surprised you most within this research? Um, to tell the truth, I don't think I was surprised because mm. I've been doing this so long and reading this so long and perhaps there's a sense of just like the heroin addict who's constantly taking the drug, it's difficult to get the, the, yeah. the rush. The, yeah. And, um, and so I, I thought, I, I realized going in that there's just a wide number of traditions. Buddha talks about 84,000 paths to enlightenment. Right. And um, what I was trying to do, though, is, is give, simplify. So um, many professors complicate things. They'll take the simple and complicate it and think that's right. intellectualism. Right, right. I like not. to take the complex and make it simple. And Congratulations. I, yes. I, I thank you on behalf of all your students for that. So, um, but, and uh, by the way, another point I, in the book, I never really try to, hope I succeed in this, sell any agenda that I want equal treatment of everything because I think people should have information to make an informed choice. Right. And that's what I was trying to achieve. You did. You didn't load it any direction at all. But what you did is toward the beginning of the book, you had all these assumptions that we across the world have about death itself, mm -hmm. what happens after death in the afterlife. And so what I thought we'd do is go into some of those assumptions. You have 50 of them. We can't do all 50 <laughs> of them. But so I just kind of Picked and chose, so uh -huh. to speak. So um, let's start into them. And the first one I have here is that, number one, the death, don't assume. So every one of these sentences will begin with, don't assume that. Mm -hmm. um, the death experience is the same for everyone, mm -hmm. right? And yes. that, that's pretty much acknowledged by just the breadth of your research. Now, let's go into the specifics. Don't assume that the dead know where they are mm -hmm. once they've passed out of the physical. Mm -hmm. Ch tell us about that for a bit. That's an interesting point, and I think is that we should we often ignore that. Um, we for, well, and again, when you're talking from Eastern traditions, they understand this automatically. This was more of a Western setback mm -hmm. uh, because they point out they believe in transmigration of souls, but they don't remember their previous lives. Mm -hmm. But they also talk about someone may be in a hellish existence, for example, in Hinduism and Buddhism, and not really realize what got them there. Just uh -huh. as, for example, if someone is born, the famous statement, uh, um, a young girl in the palace of kings, 
which is supposed to be a positive rebirth, um, she won't remember what she did to get there. Now, um, and when she's there, um, there's also the issue of we have no idea, in fact, where we are now. There's a Greek notion I also refer to. Mm -hmm. Euripides said we could be dead now. Um, that the, the Cathars in the Middle Ages who were considered yes. a medieval heresy, they thought actually this is really hell. This is hell and the yes. other side is yes. life. Yes, and it's very possible that we could be, uh, when we die here, we so fear death, but we could be going to life. Right. And uh, they noticed, for example, the ancient Greeks in particular noticed that, oddly enough, the most traumatic experience, unless we die in a really colorful way, uh, the most horrifying experience we've had will be our births. Now, we tend, properly speaking, focus on the mother because it's really traumatic for the mother, but the child also goes through horrible trauma. He's in a dark, warm, protected place, and then suddenly he's thrust into this place of lights, noise, so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Greeks thought, and they also, I should mention, pointed out that deaths, strangely enough, especially violent deaths, now again, not to encourage the audience to do this, but uh, appear to be virtually pleasurable. And in fact, they will notice that soldiers on the battlefield will die in a state of sexual arousal. You, yeah, you, yes. I read that. T yes. Tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. what the Greeks said was actually happening at this point of leaving the body in this highly charged. Obviously, there's a lot of adrenaline in mm -hmm. battle, for example. Mm -hmm. What did they say this is? Well, oddly enough, there's a widespread notion. Now, it's not universal. Some mm -hmm. cultures will endorse the natural death from old age, dying in your sleep, is the best way. Mm -hmm. But many cultures argue that a um, violent death, now again, not to encourage this with the audience, but a violent death releases the soul in a pure state. Heraclitus refers to this, and it's more powerful. Now, in contrast, in Nigeria, there's the idea that if someone who dies of old age has a strong soul because they've lived so long. So again, we don't know the correct answer. But there's, uh, and I should mention, there. I do refer to this, oftentimes there seems to be, you could argue, an agenda going on. And mm -hmm. it's especially attached to ethics, like they're encouraging certain behavior patterns. Right. A warrior culture, the Aztecs. They're going to yes. elevate the experience of death at the end of a sword or bayonet or whatnot. Yes, the right. Aztecs, medieval Vikings. Mm -hmm. Medieval Vikings refer to the straw death with disdain. It's of old age or sickness in bed. They slept on straw. So they're trying That's to a very good point you're making. Yes. It's a social statement. Yes. So I kind of caution regarding this ethical component. In fact, we don't really see ethics appear in the afterlife until you reach the civilizations, which makes it rather suspicious. Not that it's not true. I'm not mm -hmm. trying to say people go out there and sin because mm -hmm. they read it in my book. It's okay. Mm -hmm. um, but there seems to be a connection that because ordinary poor people will see, like, why is this person wealthy and beautiful and I'm ugly and in misery and living in squalor. But if society teaches them, well, just be strong, and in the next life, that rich, powerful person will be miserable, and you'll be happy. But it is rather suspicious that it does seem to enter when civilization does. Uh, and also what's rather curious is, um, and I think Americans are especially prone to this in Western Europeans, um, we assume, uh, well, like Immanuel Kant, uh, Socrates, moral absolutism, that what is good is always good in every context. But that's not the case. It's a function of how we live. Um, being humble and loving and nonviolent will not work if you're an Eskimo or Inuit hunter in the Arctic in the 18th century. You're on the edge of death. Right. People depend on you. 
and you must. It's a be more violent. matter of civilization, mm -hmm. civilizing society, so they can get on together peacefully. But that isn't appropriate in all situations. Exactly. That's what you're saying. Exactly. And this would carry over into the death scenario as well, then, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and for example, in our culture, the the the, the death in honor of, let's say, a generous death, that mm -hmm. would be probably our highest in the Judaic Christian tradition, where you die on behalf of someone else to save them. Which you also see in Buddhism, for example, that brings you, if your uh, last thing you do is to help someone else, you will be reborn as a god or a goddess. Right. And by the way, you can switch genders. You won't right. always be female and I won't always be male. Uh, and while I'm on it, I should mention there's a lot of confusion regarding uh, reincarnation in the West and transmigration of souls. We tend to, we're too linear about it. We think that, for example, our next lives will be in the future. But the, um, the Hindus call it Brahma time. All time exists mm -hmm. simultaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, past, present, and future. Somewhere, your great-great-grandfather is a two-year-old. Right. Somewhere, you're 14 years old. Somewhere, you're much older. Um, so these somewhere... incarnations are existing simultaneously. Well, what can happen is your next life, you may be actually a Roman uh, soldier standing at the foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. Your next life. Mm -hmm. Uh, your next life, you may be actually 2,000 years in the future on a Martian colony. Mm -hmm. And it, you can be born anytime, any place. In fact, in the East, they actually think there are other inhabited worlds. And mm -hmm. you may go there. Now, there's another important point, is your next life tends to be, especially in Buddhism, it's really clear, is determined by your very last things. You talked about death. What you're doing at the end will determine your very next life. Now, you, you normally don't escape karmic consequences, they say. So if you commit a crime, you will be paying for that at some point. But let's say you are, well, just, I shouldn't say you, let's say you uh, someone is a serial killer mm -hmm. and has killed many, many people and committed horrible atrocities. If at the very end, he's rescuing a four-year-old child from a fire and dies as a result, he can come back as a god in the next life. Now, that's rather curious to us. Yes. Because we tend to have this idea that if you live one life, and you will, it'll be added up and subtracted, good and evil, and you go forever into heaven or hell. In Jainism, the future pathfinder, the Jains, which are coming from India, mm -hmm. they teach at some point humans will become so corrupt. And by the way, they think of time as circular. Mm -hmm. Humans will become so corrupt that religion will disappear, we will be three feet tall, we'll live 18 years, and we'll be totally ignorant. We'll be like animals. Yikes. But That's the, real dystopian future. Yes. <laughs> when the circle of time continues, it starts to improve. Mm -hmm. And one of the, there's 24 pathfinders. They're kind of similar to prophets in the Western tradition, except they don't get information from a god. They discover it, kind of like the way we think of science. Mm -hmm. And the next pathfinder in the next when the cycle returns. Right now, he's in hell for a crime. And one thing that I always was interested in some of these traditions is you're never beyond redemption. You can always, uh, shall we say, you may mm -hmm. be punished for a crime, but the Buddhist hell lasts 590 million years for the most heinous crimes, but eventually you're out. And I should mention, even in Christian tradition, you see this, um, the Mormons, Church of Latter Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints have the concept you can't escape from hell. You yes, can, you can I, I found that interesting. Yes, right. Um, so the idea that you're never beyond redemption. No, that's a beautiful universal thought, though. Mm -hmm. 
that each one of these religions, no matter how harsh and punishing some of them may be, do believe that there is time and there's grace, and one can always recover themselves. Well, I, not to insert my own ideas into the, in mm -hmm. the book, but um, I have a feeling it's more, I like to think that, mm -hmm. that there's all, we can always, um, shall we say, uh, repair the damage mm -hmm. we've done. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, I, I should mention, this is often misunderstood in the West as well, people don't realize that we have literally billions or trillions of lives, mm -hmm. according to the Hindus, the Jains, mm -hmm. the Buddhists. Their and, time frames are so extensive, it's in the trillions of years. Mm -hmm. And every completed act um, produces a complete life. Mm -hmm. So right now, during this life, you're producing thousands of other lives. And that's why you get some traditions, such as diamond vehicle Buddhism, which we find in Tibet, they try to, in a sense, I don't mean to be funny about this, but game the system yeah. and escape in one life. They're teaching techniques to escape all of these future consequences. But I think most Westerners think um, that there's, uh, again, they're thinking in our terms that an individual lives his, let's say, 90 years, and then they subtract good and evil, and that produces one life. It's thousands and thousands of lives. Right, right. This whole notion, again, this is very Western, of thinking that we're on a type of a soul progression of sorts, that you refine this part of your thinking or your actions or your life, and, and then that takes you on to another opportunity to refine another part. And so it's kind of like this flowing upward or, and onward into more, uh, more refinement, Mm -hmm. uh, a potential for a different kind of choice down the road somewhere. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying, if I'm understanding it, is all these time frames are happening simultaneously. If you're dipping into the, what we know as the past and what we know as the future, how, how could there be a progression of anything, so to speak? Well, that's where you get into these problems. Now, by the way, the, the progression especially found in a really modernist faith, which oddly enough comes from Iran, the Baha'i faith, yes. which I really don't discuss at length yeah. because... Um, because it's so most it's so modernist, right? And most people just you know it's talking about equal rights and no and no racism and feminism right. and so forth. It's very utopian. Yes, yes. Uh, and in fact, even Christian scientists have a similar notion. Yes. I don't really get. In, I do have a, one quote from them, but it's basically this idea of suffering's not real, death's not real. We're going to progress, um, but it's it's unclear. Now, incidentally, uh, I should mention because it seems like, I don't mean to indicate that I'm just talking about some of these unusual ideas, but Emanuel uh, Swedenberg, which I talk about in the book, he, he gives a really, for those interested in Christian traditions, he's a really interesting person to, to discuss, mm -hmm. or to, I should say read, 18th century, mm -hmm. and he gave all these detailed descriptions, as well as, because we just talked earlier, uh, how can heaven and hell exist forever? Uh, he has a really rational explanation in a Christian context how that could occur. Uh, yeah, I share yes. that, because I have him on the list to ask you about. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, the, the notion is, um, uh, and by the way, I even mentioned that uh, the really infamous character, Aleister Crowley, who actually mm -hmm. coins the term drug fiend. You're right. He was, he was a pansexual, having sex with everything, yeah. including animals. Yeah. Yes. And, um, Not my favorite character. Yes. He talks about how he'd be miserable in, in heaven because right. he likes the wild women and the, and the crimes. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, Swedenberg says that we actually gravitate according to our ruling love. And I think he's right on that in one sense, that um, we, not everybody's the same. And oddly enough, there are, shall we say, hell's angels types that would be miserable in a traditional Christian heaven. Not enough uh, stimulation, perhaps. Yes, and they kind of like biker bars, and they like fist fights, and they like the wild girls. Right. And other people like the more uh, placid life. Well, according to Swedenberg, um, he says that when we die, most of us go to a world of spirits for about 30 years, 
where we see loved ones and so forth. But over time, we then gravitate towards a ruling love. And he describes these really clear visions of heavens where there are actually uh, beautiful homes and clear, nice, beautiful pastures and blue skies and all of these good people are living there. They even have a government and so forth. And they're doing good and they're very placid and peaceful. Then he describes these really what look to us like almost violent uh, crime realms. slums. Yeah. Yes. They look like urban centers and mm -hmm. people there are raping and, and, and attacking and doing violence. And he said, just as, for example, a frog mm -hmm. would be miserable in a beautiful spring pasture, he wants the swamp with its slime and stench and yes. insects that he can eat. Yes. An evil person will gravitate towards a hellish realm because that's what he wants. Right. And according to Swedenborg, it's not a god who sends us there. We're actually doing that, going there. Yes, it's our own field of resonance, what we are already relating to energetically. And, you know, I've read this before. So he's saying that the death realm may not look all that different to the living realm because you're going to be gravitating toward the same kind of experience. Yes. And um, I remember reading uh, Ruth Montgomery's A World Beyond many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. And this one sad little scene really, really struck me in the book where Arthur Ford is telling her his observations over there. And it was about a woman who had a very dull life who had really, she spent a lot of time ironing, ironing mm -hmm. clothing. Mm -hmm. And that on the other side, the woman had no idea where she was, what was going on. She just ironed all day, every day. <laughs> and I thought, hey, yikes. <laughs> That's kind of what you'd want to get away from. But the point that Swedenborg is making is, mm -hmm. no, what you are persists. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, he also makes the point that the dead, the, because we've been conditioned to think the other world is very different, that many dead people don't realize they're dead. That's what I was asking about originally. Mm -hmm. They don't know that this has happened. There's no mm -hmm. real awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. He has a wonderful passage, I referred to it, where he has a group of free-thinking, atheistic, scientific types meeting, having a meeting in a hellish realm where mm -hmm. they're talking about God doesn't exist and there's no immortal soul and there's no afterlife. And they're having these lectures on it. And they don't realize they're actually dead in a hellish realm. Right, right. So. Um, there was a part you wrote about, it cracked me up. I found it so interesting. And it, that some some belief systems say the other side is really no different from this side. Oh, yes. Maybe just a little less material, materially physical. But I, I was reading the part about um, where the Chinese belief is that's why you have to have your coins and your money stored up to take to the other side so you can make your bribes on the other side too. Yes. And to, to bribe favor. Yes. <laughs> I, thought, yes. I thought it was, I mean, obviously from my standpoint, I find it interesting, but also kind of amusing. You just, it'll be just as it is here. Yeah. And, and by the way, it's interesting. Gotta bribe that, the officials. <laughs> yes. The Chinese have the concept that you must behave yourself over there because mm -hmm. if you misbehave, you'll be thrown out. Right. We tend to think it's a one-way trip, especially in the West, I should say, not so much in the East, that you once you qualify, uh, you, you, know, you passed your ACT test and you're admitted right. into the place, to use a university metaphor, that you're there to, to stay. But in right. fact, that's not the case. Which reminds me, too, the ancient Egyptians had this wonderful concept that it's a continuous journey. Yes. And every night you may be killed. Um, you must, and that's why they went to such great lengths to prepare the dead person, mm -hmm. and it's they have salvation by magic in a sense. The dead person is equipped with magical words of power, and um, every morning, he's. Uh, in fact, this is originally the sun god does this. He's born uh, from the womb of his mother, the sky goddess. 
Yes. And he travels across the Celestial Nile, which they viewed as a river in the sky. Yes. And then every night he dies in the arms of his mother, the sky goddess. And then he has to go through Do the, the descent of darkness yes. back to the daylight yes. again. And he goes through mm -hmm. nine or 12 gates guarded by monstrous beings. Yes. He needs his passwords and he needs to know their names. That's a really common idea in magic. The name controls the thing. Yes. Uh, in the Old Testament, no one is allowed to know the name of Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't even know how it's pronounced because it was secret. Mm -hmm. Because um, we think it was because it was sacred, but it almost certainly is from a magical concept. You know the name, even of a god, you can control him. Right. Interesting. So the deceased, and by the way, another interesting thing about the Egyptians, their afterlife is actually here in a sense. Because if you have the proper magical rituals, you join the sun god in his journey, mm -hmm. you must know the passwords, you must pass through the dangers, and then you're born every into, into this world again. Well, not physically born, but you're here again among the living. Because Egyptians, the family idea triumphs over the grave. We find this in many cultures, the Chinese, the ancient Romans, Greeks. They wanted to be with their families. Um, and they will live here in the daylight. Well, I should say exist here, not mm -hmm. live. And then they go through the process each night. And uh, they thought we were not by nature immortal, which is interesting. Um, that they also thought on Earth we weren't by nature immortal. Uh, you're killed by magic, essentially. Now, if you're shot by a gun, it's because someone put a hex on you, typically. Right. Um, but then, um, just you're killed here, even though it's not natural. And then in the next world, you can also survive through magic. Well, let's talk about that. Um, there's another one in there that I found absolutely fascinating. And it was at the aboriginal understanding of what happens in death and the whole process of sleeping on the dead's head, mm -hmm. a close family member, for three days after the death, following the smoke, so forth. Can you explain that whole thing to us? It's, it's really interesting. The Egyptians, and I should mention, the aboriginal people and the Egyptians share the same concept that you're not by nature immortal, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Well, let me clarify this. That all death is caused by... Is, is caused. I they don't say. think death is a natural effect in life. Right. That's it what has I to be to caused say. by something. Right. Right. Now, in their case, and now, incidentally, when the British arrived in the 18th century, they disparaged these people mm -hmm. because they didn't have the bow and arrow. They'd never seen water boil. They were naked. Uh, they couldn't count beyond three because they had no need to. And just like the modern Americans, we judge on how many very, technology. Very, yeah, very arrogant, a big mistake yes. because they had magic. Mm -hmm. And also, what's interesting about the Aboriginal people, especially the Central Australians, mm -hmm. we're in the desert, really inhospitable areas mm -hmm. of Australia, because they were preserving really ancient ideas, almost certainly the ideas from the dawn of the human race. Mm -hmm. Now, as Americans, most people think new is good, old is bad, but that's not really true. Old can indicate the truth that has become corrupted. And um, they talked about, for example, they thought that, again, as we just mentioned, that no death was really natural. So every death was a murder. Right. So there were rituals. That's what they're doing about sleeping on the head. Another one was... You didn't was, die unless somebody was putting some bad or black juju on you. Right. Okay. And then also, they, another one was not only sleeping on the head and then dreaming of who killed this person, but also uh, they would burn the body and then follow the smoke and oddly enough, kill the first person they encountered. That's, that I thought was harsh. When I read that, I thought, I, I mean, they just assumed that the smoke, wherever the smoke was leading them, was to the murderer. Right. Now, by the way, the 18th, 19th century British types were looking at this saying, how, how backward is this? And how I remind people, though, that if the, and the Aboriginal people apparently were there from 50,000 B.C., if they were the only people on the planet, they would be here indefinitely. You know, we're ending up destroying the planet, destroying this, this place we live. 
they were, in, and oddly enough, even overpopulation. I don't mean to say we go back yeah. to this killing people yeah. every time someone dies, but their numbers are really stable. Because well, they were living in complete harmony with not only nature mm -hmm. and the elemental world, but mm -hmm. also with spiritual worlds and the worlds of ancestors. And I've read some rare documents on the way they used magic and the actual processes of magic they used mm -hmm. that are very real. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And certainly I can understand why the white man, when he first encounters this, would think mm -hmm. that this might just look savage in a way, but they are much more in tune with the processes of life than we are. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I should mention, we talked about the Caucasians viewing these people. Mm -hmm. It got so savage among the white side mm -hmm. in Tasmania. Now, incidentally, in Tasmania, they were kind of cut off, and they had forgotten how to make fire. That's, again, there's been a couple of cultures in the 19th century. They had no idea. The Andaman Islanders in the Bay of Bengal and the aboriginal people in Tasmania, they would keep it burning, but they couldn't make it. And the British just dismissed this. Like, how savage can this be? And they organized aboriginal hunts where even ministers would participate, hunting them as if they were killing deer, mm. which even today some people object to that. But right. these were humans. Right. Um, and it's, it's a shame that we tend to judge on material things. Absolutely. Yes. Do you think there might have even been some fear because they do have these powers that seem to transcend anything that, that the white man is aware of? I mean, we've, we've read the books, we've seen the films even mm -hmm. on what happened to the aboriginals in Australia mm -hmm. and taken away, separated from family, put in a very rigid Western mm -hmm. type of uh, educational system that is completely the opposite of the way they're able to function in life. Well, Do you think enough, there's fear um, there? 19th century uh, Europeans in general and Americans, we forget this, and again, I'll mention it as a historian, um, it was so they were so arrogant. Mm -hmm. They were convinced that they had the the answers. So a lot of this abuse abuse of of Aboriginal people, mm -hmm. as the Native Americans over here, is everything they were the Europeans were witnessing was just savage, and backward. You see similar things occurring in Africa, mm -hmm. and they wanted to root it out. Now, of course, infamously, you had the Spanish experience in in Central and South America, right. destroying these cultures. Right. They were absolutely convinced that they were helping them. And incidentally, I remind people, we, it's so easy to judge to the past. We do the same thing today. We mm -hmm. forget that when we, even when we export Peace Corps workers, not to criticize right. these young people and old people now helping others in their own mind, but we're corrupting uh, other societies sometimes. Absolutely. Now, in contrast, India uh, has preserved hunters and gatherers, horticulturalists, farmers, all the way up to they have the space program and nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And I often joke in my classes, if aliens were to come here, they wouldn't visit New York City. They would go to India because they, right. it's a museum piece. Everything has been preserved. And uh, George Caitlin, who was a 19th century American, went out in the Great Plains and other places uh, in the 1830s. Um, he really admired the way of life of the bison hunters. And he talks about it's a shame these people will be destroyed. And instead of setting up places like Yellowstone National Park, why we couldn't have walled off Nebraska, or I should say, part of Texas and so right. forth, and let those people live their lives. Because right. we've corrupted Native Americans as uh, well. We have. I mean, you, the government gave them some reservation land, but it's really not a good way they've been forced to live at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and again, we can't blame the British because we do the same thing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yes. We're right up there <laughs> where they're spawned. This brings me to another point, and that is... Um, do not assume if heaven does exist that you're going to stay there and hang out there forever. Exactly. That's a really common one in the yeah. West. It's possible that's the case. 
But uh, rather interesting, for example, in, again, these Easter traditions, even if you come back as a god, you have all kinds of bliss and power, they always fall because they're corrupted. If you're reborn as a god or a goddess, you have so much bliss and power, you're corrupted and you'll fall. So, um, because you're, you're bound to overextend, exploit, or whatnot. Yes, it's just simply you, <laughs> you can't this. win for losing. Exactly. If you come back as a bug, it's one thing. If you come back as a god, you're going to be tempted into more another fall. Right, and it, it's kind of curious. <laughs> we often in our pop culture, for example, the legendary TV series Dallas. We show what money and power can do to people, mm -hmm. and uh, if you if you can indulge all of your your wishes. We often forget what happens if we go to heaven uh, and we have this just perfect uh, happiness and everything we want is there. Do we start could itching for some us? drama? Yeah, could it corrupt us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's a famous statement against, I think it was Nietzsche says, uh, against boredom, even the gods struggle in vain. Yes. Um, so it's possible. It's it's we. It could be very different, and we it may change. Well, and as creative beings with the ability, beings with the ability to create, mm -hmm. you would think that th that would make a good argument for what you're saying. That ultimately you would have a need to express yourself in a new way again. Yes. And that this would keep the tension or whatnot moving forward, so you would continue this wheel of incarnations. Yes. And look at the creative Harry Potter. She may be in the first novelist to have been become a billionaire through creating these characters. Now she's bored, wants to do some other things. That's very human. Mm -hmm. uh, wants to be recognized for something else. Exactly. And if we're in paradise, maybe it would become boring. And maybe, maybe uh, again, bliss is overrated. Who knows? So. <laughs> okay. Well, so let's go to hell then, all right? Okay. So yes. do not assume that hell is necessarily less pleasant than um, the upper worlds, right? That's found in many. In fact, by the way, it's really curious. Uh, once again, hell seems to be develops when farming develops. You get, yeah, you get hunters yeah, and gatherers. Yeah, explain that. That was interesting. Well, you get hunters and gatherers, and then we develop agriculture. Now, years ago, up to a couple decades ago, they always assumed that the farmer was in advance, and they used to wonder what took so long because it's now estimated maybe 99.9% .9 of our existence, hunters and gatherers. Why did it take the human race so long to become farmers? Now, when the farmer develops, and oddly enough, they're the first town dwellers. We think of farmers as out in the middle of nowhere today, but in fact, you couldn't plant a, a crop middle of nowhere. So they would build these strongholds and farm the land around it. So they would invent uh, eventually, metal, eventually metalworking, writing, things we consider positive developments. But they also develop slavery. The farmer develops human sacrifice. You don't find that among hunters and gatherers. Uh, hierarchy, the tyrant. Uh, all of this comes from farmers. In fact, most Americans don't realize we talk about the modernism and the American way of life. Mm -hmm. That's what primitives people, and I don't mean primitives in a negative sense, but gender equality, uh, lack of hierarchy, no tyrants, everybody basically is governed through consensus. And oddly enough, even in the issue of abortion and infanticide, uh, farmers historically practice infanticide. They kill babies after they're born. Romans would consider it ridiculous, in fact, even a crime, to murder a baby in the womb before you look at it. But if the child were puny, misshapen, sick, they killed it. They didn't want the burden. Right. Ancient Greeks did the same thing. So the farmers practice infanticide and think abortion is stupid and evil, mm -hmm. but now the primitive people practice abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, they Hunters have all kinds and gathers. Yes. And again, I shouldn't use that term. It has, I, I think of primitive as actually is pure, and I keep forget that people right. yes. often view it as a different way. 
They have techniques through herbs and also, now again, no one should try this, it's dangerous, mm -hmm. through not belly it. manipulation to cause the miscarriage. Mm -hmm. But so and our, certain our, herbs that were used historically in the Egyptian cultures as yes, well, yes. yes. So, but our modern uh, value system is actually reverting back to the, essentially, the hunting and gathering moral system, which is rather curious at that level, in yes. some ways. Now, yes. again, we, but we've adopted, we've kept the urban, um, the notion of, again, cooperation, love, and so forth, because we mm -hmm. have to live together. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so yeah. with that advancement into agrarian societies, how did they view the afterlife compared, again, to... Yes, it, it's the, that's where you get the idea of a good place and a bad place. Right. Now, uh, curious enough, for example, the Melanesian people from the Pacific, they, they're include the aboriginal, they put the afterlife on this earth. You never leave the earth. Mm -hmm. And we're always thinking of going somewhere else. And in one point, and I again refer to this, is modern people always think if God exists and if the dead exist, they're somewhere else. Now, 19th century people did try to rationalize this with science and say it could be in another dimension mm -hmm. that emerged in the 19th century. The dead are there. God is there. But um, most people today think the spirit is not really physical in any way, and it's disconnected from our, our modern world. But the Melanesian people think you go to the West, and there's no place of torment. Uh, in fact, again, to refer to the Aboriginal, the soul is the size of a grain of sand. You go to a sacred site where the ancestors go, typically a waterfall or mountain or so forth, and when the proper woman comes along, they select her and are born. Now, it's interesting that they say the reason younger women give birth and not older is because the soul wants to make certain he's taken care of. I see. So we need someone there for a longer period yes, of time. Yes, yes. And it's nothing to do with ethics. They simply make a choice. And frankly, when the Aboriginal people first saw the British, they thought they were the ancestors returning. Yes. Interesting. So, now, let's go, you touched on it just a little bit, but let's go to the Egyptian bardos a bit. Mm -hmm. The Tibetan bardo, you mean? The Tibetan bardos, Sorry. yes. So. Um, yes, it's just simply the notion Tibetan of, Book of the, the dead, yeah. and this is called... And the connection, everybody notices that the Egyptian Book of the Dead yes. and the Tibetan Book of the Dead right. are very similar yes. in some respects. One now, was passed from the other. Yes. Now, the uh, Tibetans, which, uh, by the way, for example, Diamond Vehicle Buddhism mm -hmm. has the idea of, it's actually, strangely enough, Tantra practices, which is a short path. Mm -hmm. Now, there's left-hand Tantra and right-hand Tantra. The Dalai Lama represents right-hand Tantra. Left-hand Tantra is basically you achieve enlightenment through orgies, drugs, right. forbidden things, eating beef, mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, and forbidden foods. Um, but the Dalai Lama is from the right-hand Tantra, which again is information, and they think, um, and it's connected to a large point of view, everything is thought, according to this tradition. Yes. There's no real matter and energy. This is a dream in a sense. That we've created. Yeah. Well, in some versions, it's our created. In some versions, somebody else's dream, mm -hmm. but it's a dream. Mm -hmm. they, they call it non-dualist thought. Everything is thought. Mm -hmm. So when the person dies, the Tibetan Book of the Dead gives really interesting details what the dead person will experience and also how to get the best possible next life or even release. Mm -hmm. So it's what to look for. And what's curious is if they're correct, and they say it's based on, now they call it, it's one of their termas. These are hidden treasures that are given by wise sages, and they're hidden till the human race is ready for it. And they say these are people who consciously went through the death experience and came back to tell us mm -hmm. what occurs. 
And if they're correct, I'm not trying to say they are, but if they're correct, we're completely misinterpreting what's going on. So what do they say is correct? Well, for example, I should mention well, some years ago, fascinating book, Raymond Moody, Life After Life, yes. generated the Loved really it. interesting uh, research on near-death experience. And Dr. Moody, who both has an MD and um, psychology right. PhD, uh, he noticed that people were sharing experiences. Right. The light, often beckoning figures and so forth. But if the Tibetans are correct, we will all experience this, but it's only the initial stage. And if we don't understand what we're seeing, it's going to take us down. They say that when you first die, you encounter the clear light of the void, which is brighter than a thousand suns and louder than a thousand uh, thunder strikes. And most people shrink back. And by the way, it's really interesting. You don't have a body, a mental body. You're just in the light. And most people will shrink back, and that starts to take you down. And then there's a secondary experience with the light. Most people will shrink back. And then you start this, this process. Now, you will see beautiful entities. And the Tibetans say, if you're Christian, you'll see angels or Jesus. You see what you expect to yes, see. Yes, yes. But they say, don't approach them. They're not really there. And it's, it could seduce you off the proper way. Now, this is really jarring. To, and I'm trying to say, I'm not saying that Tibetans are right and we're wrong, but it's jarring. Even if you see loved ones over there, you're not supposed to embrace them. Yes, actually, I was told that by mm -hmm. the, some of the mm -hmm. entities that I've been associated with, and they mm -hmm. said, don't ever touch the ones when you're passing through from dream time back through that realm mm -hmm. into the body mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And I remember having one experience that was, was profound one day where I ended up being aware I was passing through that dimension mm -hmm. to enter my body. And this one woman wanted my attention so badly. And she was coming up, walking up to me to touch me because she wanted me to acknowledge her. And I remembered, don't touch. Don't let her touch you. Mm -hmm. And I just I acknowledged her and told her I could see telep telepathically mm -hmm. what a beautiful entity she'd been in that life. And she shrunk back. Mm -hmm. And as soon as she shrunk back, I was able to then enter my body back to a wakeful mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was interesting to have that awareness there, even of that at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Even Jesus says, don't touch me yet. Yes. During the resurrection That's right. descriptions. Right. Um, and then the, now the Tibetans say that all of this is from the contents of your mind. That's why a Christian sees this and a Muslim sees this. Right. And Westerners misunderstand that because they think, well, this is just a, a, an hallucination. Mm -hmm. But remember, to the Tibetans, this is basically an hallucination. Right. So it's equally real to this world as, as this universe is right. to us. And then they say after about seven, eight days, you start to see monstrous entities mm -hmm. that are frightening, that will rip off your head, rip out your intestines, rip out your viscera, tear out your kidneys. And they say, do not be afraid because this is from the content of your mind. And you're yes. supposed to be, the important part of, through this is to be calm and detached. Yes, and then after this period, you start to, if you haven't escaped, and they give you information how to achieve release. And if you haven't escaped to this point, you start to, you're going to be drawn into another body. Now, there's six, now it's actually more complex than this, but generally speaking for most, there'll be six possible levels of rebirth. Mm -hmm. And then they tell you what to look for. This will take you as, bring you back as an animal. This will take you back as a god, as a demigod, as a human and a hellish being, and a hungry ghost. And oddly enough, they view the human as the best possible rebirth, even above a god or a demigod. Yes, that was interesting. Yes. Why is that? Because we have uh, the most choice. Um, mm -hmm. If you're an animal, you're 
plunge of ignorance. Now, a lot of Westerners idolize animals now because we've lost this, and they think this is a beautiful experience. I want to come back as my cat. He gets yeah. to lie around. Somewhat basically. limited, but okay. Yes, but in fact, they would say it's a bad one because it will require millions of lives to get back up to the human level. You come back as a cat or a horse, it's going to require millions of lives to reach mm -hmm. human level. Mm -hmm. If you come back as a god or a demigod, they again have too much power and they're plunged in, uh, especially the demigods, they're, they're characterized by jealousy, they're trying to go after the gods, and you're, you can't get out. But the human has the greatest um, choices. He's in the middle. It's kind of like, what is the Goldilocks? And the three bears sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and we are in the middle part. And it's viewed... It usually requires 8 million lives to achieve human status. Hmm. And then this will be the way to get out. So they view being a human as a special opportunity. Interesting. Yes. There was a, okay, so we're going to hop on to uh, Zoro Zoroastrians mm -hmm. and their belief. I loved it, that a good man, the soul, spends three nights on top of the body, I have written here, mm -hmm. and is going to be filled with joy. Virgins. Now, this is a really interesting take on the notion mm -hmm. of the beautiful milky-skinned virgin mm -hmm. and what she says to the mm -hmm. departed. Yes, in fact, uh, he sees, and again, you were talking about that the good person dies and he, there's these beautiful, uh, fragrant uh, scents mm -hmm. and he sees beautiful things and then he starts a journey. Now, the reason that he, he is there for roughly three days is because that's when decomposition begins. Okay. So that's how they always think that we think mm -hmm. of death as a quick this is, you're now dead, we can harvest your organs and put them in someone else. They think death is a process, which mm -hmm. it really is. Mm -hmm. And then he begins the journey and he sees this beautiful female. 15 years old, yes. right? Oddly enough, it's, it shows the culture that they're doing that young. Yes. Um, and, but, and he thinks, he tells her she's the, he's, she's the most beautiful damsel he's ever seen. And she replies, I am not a damsel. I'm your beautiful thoughts, your beautiful words, and your beautiful deeds. And he then goes to a, a sort of a paradise. By the way, the word paradise is actually Persian. That's where it comes from in the Bible. Yes, I mean that's fascinating because it, it because we've been so overexposed to the notions of the kind of mm, negatively Im perceived aspects of Islamism, where mm -hmm. you risk your life for Allah and because of the promise of virgins, you know, mm -hmm. being serviced by virgins. This puts it in a much more refined mm -hmm. light that that embodiment of everything feminine and beautiful mm -hmm. is actually the embodiment of the goodness in yourself mm -hmm. and that she's just reflecting that back to you. And it's also interesting that they depict the negative. If you're evil, you see it, this really revolting, uh, haggish. Yes. And the deceased who's been evil, he says, "My, you know, my gosh, you're so revolting. And she replies, I'm not a hag or a woman. I'm your evil thoughts, evil words, evil deeds. Yes. Uh, and apparently it would be reversed for the um, women. So they would encounter perhaps a beautiful, handsome men, yes. revolting men. Yes. No, I found, I found that to be actually quite beautiful. Um, we have, gosh, we only have about five minutes left, so we're going to skip through some of these. Um, the Fijians believe that in your afterlife, uh, you remain the same as you were at the time of death. And I was pondering that because I've seen other people, including myself, who've had the opposite experiences where who, the person who's died, especially if they're elderly, often comes back in a younger form of themselves that is more preferred. So take off on that one. I think that could also be an encouragement to, again, perhaps die younger. Yes, so you don't uh, have to I, be I wrinkled in the afterlife. Yes. <laughs> I, I should mention, what's a really beautiful concept, you'll find, uh, for example, in Eurasia, and frankly, it seems to be a Celtic tradition, that everything's reversed. According to the Eurasians, Siberian cultures, 
uh, it's all, for example, it's summer here, it's winter there, if there's a famine right. here, there's plenty there, and you age backward. So if you go there, very old, we also seem to have been a Celtic tradition. Interesting. If you arrive as an in elderly the person, okay. yes, everything is reversed. So here you grow older and older, and in the afterlife you grow younger and younger. So there would be advantages in some respects going there elderly, because you become younger and younger. And then, oddly enough, you turn into a baby again, uh, being reborn. Uh, the ancient Greeks actually noticed, and incidentally, these are all Indo-European cultures, hence the similarities. Uh, the ancient Greeks noticed that, not to be critical, because I'm on my way there myself, but elderly people show a lot of characteristics of babies. For example, they lose their hair, they may lose their teeth, mm. they may lose control over bowels and urine and so forth, they can't walk anymore. And the Greeks thought, this really old person was turning into a baby again. Well, that's interesting. It's a beautiful way of looking at it. Yeah, I saw a documentary on men and women as yes. when you're born, you develop and you age and you just before death. And it was fascinating because it not only did it show that same characteristic, but it showed the male and female body mm -hmm. start the same and from behind. They showed them all mm -hmm. through developmental stages mm -hmm. naked from behind, mm -hmm. end up looking the same behind before they pass mm -hmm. uh, on. Even what we think is tragedy of Alzheimer's, yeah. loss of memory, children, babies cannot form memories, really. They forget, and this right. is what's happening. Now, it's just a beautiful way of looking at the tragedy of we view as a tragedy of old age. The Greeks view it as the, you're being renewed. Right. Okay, uh, a couple more here. The Aztecs believe that if a woman died in childbirth, that was a very esteemed way to go, and she would come back with a sun god, right? Yes, yes. Right. Um, I should mention, by the way, that uh, the idea most a lot of warrior cultures consider woman's death, a woman's death in childbirth, is the female equivalent of war. Yes. Now, in a lot of Western scholars, because they're too specialized, they miss this among the Vikings. They also have Freya has this field where women go. She takes actually half the slain. Mm -hmm. uh, Valhalla takes half the heroic slain, and then Freya gets the other another half. And a lot of what modern scholars, because everybody's so specialized, think she's taking half of the men. It's clearly a reference to the female equivalent of war. She's a, she's a fertility goddess. Right. And she's taking the heroic women. Now, tragically, we don't realize this in the West. On an average year, even today, if you're not some really outlandish war, more women die giving birth than men die in war. Absolutely. We've managed to eliminate that in the Western world. Today, it's really a shocking experience when a young woman or a woman gives birth and dies or dies during the process. Yes. But in the third world, it's still quite common, sadly. Right. Right. And um, hence the, the equation. Well, now let's re reverse that um, view of it. Plato believed that if you're a cowardly man, that you would have to come back as a woman. That's clearly, by the way, and I, I, I've always talked about this in my classes, not this particular point, but... We idealize the ancient Greeks, but they're probably the greatest misogynists who have ever existed. <laughs> True. We're not even certain if Greek women had first names. Because when they were we just see, property? Well, they were, they were nicknames. Mm -hmm. uh, Phryne is actually, uh, she was uh, noted for her beauty, was actually a prostitute. That means toad. Who's going to name their daughter toad? <laughs> toad. And uh, they often will not translate these names. And in fact, even the Romans don't really have names for girls. They just feminize the father's name. Mm -hmm. So that's where Julia comes from. Mm -hmm. And if he had three daughters, they were all named Julia. It's kind of like George Foreman in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, with naming all the kids <laughs> right, the same. Right. Um, but the Greeks were really, uh, in fact, that's why they institutionalized bisexuality.
because the Greeks, now all Greek men were expected to marry, right. have children, but they viewed uh, boys for pleasure. Now yes, they'd all end up in prison right. today because they did. They thought sex between adult men was actually weird to them, mm -hmm. but they would. Uh, they viewed the elder adult male with having sex with male. a boy. Yeah, uh, it was part of the education process. Strange enough. Um, yes, indeed. So the reason Plato's going to be expressing that is it, it's a really anti-female It's quite culture. an insult. If you're a coward, yes. you're coming back as a woman. Yes. So on that note, since we're out of time, which of all of these mythologies and such um, do you, did you most personally relate to or do you think would be the most, the most pleasant, agreeable, or logical of them all? The one thing I think, tended personally speaking, not in the book, but I'm really convinced this notion that and it's discussed in many traditions that you will encounter what you expect. Yes. And that's why the person's thoughts should be directed in a certain way. So people literally uh, should basically study all the traditions and say, I'm going to tell, go for this one. Right. This Choose. is the idea that our, that our yeah. minds are creating all of this. Yeah. Well. In a sense, like as I mentioned, the Comanche really will encounter the happy hunting ground with the bison and the cherry juice. Right. And the, uh, the Viking will find his Valhalla, and the Christian will find his heaven. Uh, and the Jewish person will go into uh, the Garden of Eden, which they believe they don't really have a heavens for God in Judaism. They believe that the Garden of Eden still exists because Genesis points it out. When right. Adam and Eve are expelled, the Eden is still there. So that's where they will go. So uh, it's very, but the most important part is um, we understand that if you don't plan for retirement, if you don't lay up a pension, if you don't invest, that's immature behavior. Yeah. And I think if you don't consider the possibility there's another level of existence after this, and you do nothing to prepare, that's reckless, immature, childish behavior, and should not be, shall we say, practiced. I agree with you. And one other thing we didn't get to, and I think it was very important, we'll just throw it out there, is that it was only when Christendom came into being that eternal hell and damnation ever came up. It doesn't exist anywhere else. This notion of eternal suffering is exclusively Christian. It is curious that we're not altogether certain how that developed, by the yeah. way, but it clearly the first time we see it. Controls it, people well. Yes. Now, I should mention, although it was uh, among the early Christians, uh, there was debate on this issue. For example, they had the concept of universalism mm -hmm. origin in the second century that he thought that God was so good, ultimately even Satan would be forgiven and taken into heaven. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, we talked about Zoroaster, right. he talked in terms of ultimately everybody is saved. Right. Um, but oddly enough, by the emergence, you got orthodoxy emerging yeah. in the 4th, 5th century, and it kind of quashed these ideas. Right. I'm not altogether certain why, but eternal damnation seems to... Be That's reckless and irresponsible yes. as well, mm -hmm. as not considering what might be next for us. I just want to, I just, I forgot to put that out there. So, again, Mark, it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on well, this. I think people are going to find it fascinating. Hello.